general became a slave. A slave who became a gladiator. The gladiator defied an emperor. Only a famous death will do. The frost. Sometimes it makes the blade stick. You find yourself alone, riding in green fields with the sun on your face. Do not be troubled, for you are in Elysium, and you're already dead! Hello and welcome back to Coffee and Circuses for the first time in, I don't know, what must be four, maybe five months. Decided to resurrect the podcast to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Gladiator, which had its premiere on the 1st of May 2000 and went on to be a box office smash, a multi-award winner and a cultural phenomenon. Also, we're under lockdown, so what else are we going to do with our time? And joining me today for the for this discussion about Gladiator, I have fellow Roman archaeologist and nerd, <laughs> movie aficionado, Jay Inge, returning to the pod. How how is life going on the other side of Canterbury? <laughs> well, uh, it's I imagine been... there's been a lot of baking of bread. <laughs> there has been a lot of baking of bread, um, more more than usual, anyway. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's fine. Times are different. Times have radically changed, haven't they? But um, I'm coping, basically. You know uh, how, how everyone is, really. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I'm sort of quite appreciative of uh, having a, 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 a little goal in mind for today of watching Gladiator and, and talking about it. <laughs> You've got to have little goals throughout the day to keep yourself sane, haven't you? So uh, um, this was one of them. <laughs> have you been making use of a Disney Plus membership? Have you seen any of The World According to Jeff Goldblum yet? No, you see, I mean, I, I'm, I mean I'm trying to sort of stick to like one at a time so i had like an amazon prime membership for ages and yeah i was just watching netflix so i sort of committed full to amazon prime <laughs> programming for a few weeks into this lockdown so just like watching mr robot man in the high castle and stuff like that and um so i'm, I'm sort of going through them and then i'm going to move on to these other services and maybe it's a sort of like uh money saving way to go through all the different <laughs> programs um but yeah so i haven't watched any disney plus but i'm assuming that the Goblin program is amazing. I mean, it's even better than I thought it was going to be. Mm. He each episode he explores a different theme, and you look at some of the themes and you're thinking, "What? I don't get this. Like, what is this going to be really about?" Like, there's an episode on denim, and he meets a guy that goes around de- the deserts in America looking for abandoned places where people have left behind clothing, particularly denim, which he can sell up to for several thousand dollars and and then he goes to Las Vegas where he meets um he attends a LGBTQ line dancing uh, event and he's talking to them about how joining that kind of society the the line dancing group and everybody wears denim so it's a kind of almost uniform and everybody's kind of on the same footing and it made them make people there feel um uh they felt very inclusive and honestly I aspire at some point in my life to be as happy as Jeff Goldblum line dancing. He looks so happy to be part of it, like genuinely the look of joy on his face. 
I'd give it ten out of ten goblins. That's that's why I'd give it. It's it's, it's that's the same. Like he does an episode on RVs, uh, the episode on ice cream, which worked very effectively on me because I went and bought Ben and Jerry's afterwards. Uh, Jurassic Park though, um, I did watch uh, Hunt of Hunt for the Wilder People with uh, Sam Neill. It was very good. It was very good. I mean, Taika Waititi, like everything he does is good, isn't it? <laughs> So like I said before, he's got an incredible knack of getting good performances out of child actors. Sometimes you see child actors in films and you're like, oh, it's a bit cheesy or a bit naff or it doesn't quite, they don't seem to be quite comfortable with what they're doing. But that and Jojo Rabbit, the kids in those are just so on point. It's so well done. Um, yeah, no, it's certainly entertaining. And uh, if you were to ask people, are you not entertained back in... Uh, 2000, how's that for a segue? <laughs> um, they would all agree that they were very entertained because Gladiator released on the 1st of May, uh, well, it's had its premiere on the 1st of May, I should say, and then a few days later released on the state in the States uh, and then released in the UK and the rest of the world uh, a few more days after that. And goes on to be box office smash, $460 million at box office, over $460 million actually, wins multiple awards, including Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor, Russell Crowe, Visual Effects, Costume Design, Sound Mixing. Ridley Scott, though, didn't get Best Director for it. What do you think, off the top of your head, its Rotten Tomatoes score would be now? I was quite surprised when I checked this the other day. Um, 80% or something? Positive? I, I don't know. You'd, uh, you'd think it would be in the positive, but... Um... Oh, it's, it's definitely positive, but it's uh, 76%, which is lower than I thought. If it was a Marvel film, it would rank, I think, in the bottom four or five Marvel films. That is a kind of comparative. It's 1% higher than Age of Ultron. I think Age of Ultron, Thor 2, and Iron Man 2 are the only three Marvels that rank below it. So, uh, no, yeah, Iron Man 2, Thor 2, and Age of Ultron are the three Marvel films, I think, off the top of my head, that rank below it. Which, basically, my inference from that was that if all three Captain Americas have scored higher than Gladiator, then where is Chris Evans' Oscar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. The thing about Gladiator, though, is that... I don't know I don't know if you know this or not. Do you know it's a remake? Really? Uh, no, I did not know this. Oh, so what, what, I mean, a remake of a, an English film, or is it a foreign-speaking film or something? Or? No, it's, it's a remake of uh, Fall of the Roman Empire with Christopher Plummer. Must be... General Chan. Gerald Chang, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't play he plays Commodus in it, but not it's not in the original Klingon. Yeah, Fall of the Roman Empire, which was I don't know, I can't remember the top of my head, the nineteen sixties, I think it is. Fall of the Roman Empire is about Marcus Aurelius, who's played by Alec Guinness, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi. He dies at the start of the film in Germania, much like in Gladiator. He wants to bequeath the Empire to uh, one of his generals, who I don't think was called Maximus, but he reveals this Commodus, who's played by Christopher Plummer, uh, and then also the general that he wants to bequeath the Empire to is kind of the boyfriend of Marcus Aurelius' daughter as well. And then in this one, that in Fall of the Roman Empire, though, when uh, this is revealed to Commodus and the kind of proto-Maximus, he actually lets Commodus become emperor. Like, the character of Maximus, like, he's not kind of sold. He's, there's no real becoming a gladiator in it. Um, but it is about... Commodus taking over the Roman Empire about a general who sort of realises that he's lost his way and then revolts against him and it's kind of weird actually because for the Roman Empire it's a long film and it actually has a hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes I don't see why that I mean that's a comparative doesn't make a lot of sense because it was an absolute bomb at the box office 
and it spelled the end of the sword and sandals era because it was basically such a commercial failure they were like okay we're done with this genre now until gladiator came along and uh, brought it back which is kind of nice in some respects that this story of commodus bookends the two periods of sword and sandal epics but um yeah no that one also as well had like stuff to do with the parthians invasions from persia and at the end of it the the culmination of the story does have commodus fighting the general in almost gladiatorial battle but it's not quite he kills commodus but then he he survives and he kind of decides that he doesn't want to be emperor and he leaves the romans to essentially auction off the throne in the forum which is quite cool because that is what happened in real life despite the opt kind of more optimistic ending of gladiator um uh, in reality i mean what you have here the five emperors next and uh didis julianus buying the imperial throne at one point it's an interesting film because it's quite nuanced but that's probably it's undoing in some ways because a lot of it is basically about the moral decline of rome and in the end as well i think when maximus or i think the lucilla uh commodus's sister tries to get the army to march against Commodus, they won't do it because he's bought them off. So it's basically showing like the army will probably go with whoever pays them. Like there's no kind of moral direction for the army. It's just if who's ever paying us gold, we'll just go with them. Which is kind of true really for the, the, the first century as well. So, you know, it had, it had a lot going for it. But yeah, so when we talk about Gladiator and, and the sources it's based on, I mean, really it's actually not based much on historical sources as much as it is on fall of the Roman Empire. Because I was going to say that it's strange, isn't it, that I was thinking without Gladiator, but obviously that film is part of this, well, do, would people even have much knowledge of Commodus? Like, I reckon now Commodus is, for the general public, in, in their sort of top five of maybe emperors that they might know, like with Hadrian and Caesar. I know Caesar's technically not a, uh, an emperor, but, you know, up with those names that I was going to survey. But is Commodus probably up there due to these films that would have just been forgotten by history otherwise, but... See, yeah, that's that's an interesting question because uh, somebody I know was watching uh, the Netflix series. Is it Fall of the Roman Empire? Yes, yeah, one of those. And the first series of that is based around Commodus, where it's a documentary slash drama. And she was saying something to me about it, and then I said something about, oh, but you know. Commodus is and she was like I've never heard of him before but then I found out she hadn't seen Gladiator which I was stunned by uh, but, <laughs> but even still I do I do I suppose yeah it's it's an interesting one I mean that's an interesting question now in itself that as time moves on how watched is Gladiator as a film um, yeah. I suppose we'll come back around to, to the impact of it but a few years back I remember Ray Lawrence tweeting that graph of applications to study ancient history I think it was in Australia which I discovered the other day. I didn't realise Russell Crowe is actually from New Zealand. He's not from Australia. I never realised that. I, I thought he was Australian. Oh, shows, shows what I know. Um, but um, yeah, there was uh, this massive bounce in the number of people applying to do ancient history after Gladiator came out. I mean, obviously you don't know for definite, but I mean, it looks pretty telling that around the sort of 2000 to 2001, there's this upsurge in people wanting to apply to study that period in history and you know, Gladiator being this kind of big film that came out at the time and then Russell Crowe retweeted it so I assume now Ray Lawrence and Russell Crowe are like best friends um, <laughs> standard standard yeah but yeah no it's interesting to think that like 20 years on how many people do actually watch now and how many people are familiar with it because the crazy thing is now most people coming into university would have been born after Gladiator came out um, that's how old we are now. So it's, it's difficult to tell, I suppose, how much impact it has now on 
current generations, particularly of people going on to study it, and whether or not Commodus will become a name that will slowly dissipate into the background again that's uh, played memorably by Joaquin Phoenix in, in the film. And I'm guessing he must have been nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He didn't win it, but um, I think he would have been in for a shout. Just, just on a very quick side note, months later, what are your thoughts on Joker looking back on it? I mean, I've got to be honest, I still look back and I know it was good, but I'm still like, God damn, that was bleak. Yeah, I mean, it's so bleak. Uh, I, I just... Uh... I mean, I, I take it as a good movie, an exploration of, of mental health and stuff, like I said at the time, but I don't think I have really ambition to watch it again. Uh, I think I, I've been on that journey. I've seen those things these ha- happening and stuff, and it's obviously extremely well acted by Joaquin Phoenix. But yeah, I, I don't think I sort of want to take another bite of that apple. <laughs> I don't know, you know, it's, it's not something that necessarily interests me uh, that much, so... Yeah, I, I applaud the performance, but at the same time, I'm just oh, I'm not really, not really fully on board with uh, the hype about it. You know, I perhaps enjoy some other film, other comic book films more. Maybe that's maybe that's the problem that I sort of go in with this veneer of comic book, what I want from a comic book film, which is not necessarily this, you know, <laughs> this type of atmosphere. So maybe I was, uh, yeah, maybe that's the problem. <laughs> Marvel's legend to look at the world through rose-tinted glasses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's just it's just a certain vibe, isn't it? You know, it's like you're going to see a Star Wars film. Uh, you know, you're getting a certain vibe. You can see a Star Trek film, or whatever. You know, and it's the same with comic book ones. Even though I sort of knew it was going to be quite bleak, but yeah, it's sort of unrelentingly. So, and in a way, I sort of think that it's good just having it as a full stop. If they did it, it's a great exploration of these issues. Um, interesting take on a character. But making it a franchise or something seems a bit ridiculous to me. But, I mean, what do you think about it? No, I still think it's... Uh, I still look back and uh, I feel the same way. It was all right the first time around. I don't think it's got... It's not something that I've got a massive desire to revisit anytime soon. Maybe five years or something down the line, if it's online, Netflix or something, I'll be like, oh, I'll check it out. I mean, he's saying this about, like, an Oscar-winning film. But, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's kind of each to their own, really, isn't it? And... Uh, it's yeah it was good it just for me i i don't know i i guess in some respects that's that's kind of the issue isn't it and we'll get into i suppose with gladiator about how sometimes you go to films to kind of remove yourself from the reality of things even though they tend to often project back onto they tend well they tend to reflect what's going on at the time and i suppose joker felt like a more of a kind of hyper reflection of things that are going on now as opposed to Marvel is a bit more maybe escapism like Marvel there's a sense of light at the end of the tunnel Joker is more you just keep driving you're going to smack into a wall at the end of the tunnel it's 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 not you're not walking out of the cinema thinking no, no everything's going to be okay <laughs> but yeah Joaquin Phoenix incredible performance as as Commodus and then you've got but, Con- but no beard like there should have been a beard shouldn't there like technically shouldn't Commodus have been yeah Again, I, I do wonder as well, because in Fall of the Roman Empire, Christopher Plummer looks somewhat similar to the depiction of Commodus in Gladiator. So I don't know, again, how much of that styled on the film that Gladiator is clearly based on rather than looking at um, actual images of Commodus. Yeah, I mean, I mean, having said that, though, I mean, you've got uh, Marcus Aurelius going full beard in it as well. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose the thing is maybe Commodus is supposed to be quite young in it, but... I don't know. It's, uh, Could have had a neck beard. Could have had a neck beard. Could have gone for the Nero. <laughs> I do wonder. I do wonder now that I suppose you could say that beards have come back in fashion. He says, having got shaved in a while, that whether or not if it got made again now, whether or not we would see Commodus 
with a beard or not. Yeah, I mean, technically, he should be, isn't he? Because post, it's Hadrian brings it brings it right back in, doesn't he? And then you get a sort of um, run of bearded it's emperors. progressively longer as uh, the second century goes on. And yeah. then you get Commodus, and then it goes ro- goes back again to the close-shaven military. I suppose Timia Severus has got quite a beard going on. But then... He's got quite a curly beard, like... Uh, obviously, he spends a lot of time uh, perfecting it. And then... Uh, but then when you get Caracalla, then it's like right back to the military style short beard again. But yeah, um, Oliver Reed in his last role as well, playing uh, Proximo, the gladiator, well, I suppose, slash slave dealer is essentially what he is. Gladiator trainer, maybe. We'll come back to him later on. But Connie Nielsen in it plays Lucilla as well, the, the sister of Commodus. And it's quite interesting actually watching a documentary about Gladiator and she was talking in that about how she grew up watching I, Claudius, which you've got Derek Jacobi in it as as Gracchus, the senator as well. Derek Jacobi, basically now I think he's like the go-to guy when you want him to, when you want to do something based in the Roman world. Um, I think he's one of the names top of the list because he played Claudius again recently in the Rotten Romans horrible history film. And he also played, I found out recently, in a radio adaption of I, Claudius. He played Augustus. Somebody else played I, Claudius, and they had him come in and play uh, Augustus. So, um, yeah, no, he's, uh, he's he's done a fair old stint in the, in the Roman world, Derek Jacobin. He's like, he never quite managed to get a sort of big Hollywood movie, did he? Like, unlike some of those other Shakespearean actors. Like he's not a uh, McKellen or a uh, Stewart, basically. That's, that's... <laughs> also, I, I like... He, I'm always surprised that he's the exact type of actor that you were expected to turn up in Game of Thrones, and he never sort of quite got that. Like, uh, yeah. you know, how many sort of jobbing English actors of these sort of Shakespearean backgrounds, or whatever, um, ended up in that in that series and everything? But no, Derek Jacobi. I don't know. You know, it's strange. Uh, but um, he has does does have quite a connection in some way to Game of Thrones, though. Because did you ever watch that program, Vicious, with him and Ian McKellen? I saw a couple of episodes on it. wasn't overly sold there, but yeah, uh, it was a it was a sitcom like sort of about two theatrical lovies living together or whatever. But in that um, film, there's like a younger uh, guy that lives in the same block of flats, I think, and he's played by the guy that um, plays Ramsey Bolt. And it's weird because obviously at the same time that like, he was in Game of Thrones playing this god awful character, and then he's in this sort of uh, <laughs> he's in this sort of. Uh, uh, very light-hearted sitcom where he's playing a sort of innocent you know, northern lad, uh, you know, getting mixed up in all these hijinks of Ian McKellen and Derek Jacobi's characters, and it's just like I just can't can't connect these two things. I can't watch him like one night having <laughs> Ramsey Bolton, and then the, the next night this 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 character. But yeah, you're waiting for that moment where in Vicious he suddenly switches his character, like the <laughs> you're waiting for the facade to drop, and suddenly he's just a cold-blooded murderer, essentially. <laughs> beforehand uh, a couple of mo- a few months ago actually i think was when i first brought it up about uh, i was like oh, you know what would be really good did for a podcast like something based around i claudius and i've been waxing lyrical about it for months and now i i know there's an i claudius podcast that's been going on for a few weeks and there's also somebody the other day that tweeted about going through every episode of i claudius and live tweeting as they were watching it and i was like 
God damn it, I'm a visionary ahead of my time. But just, <laughs> so, sometimes it's best not to sit on these ideas and just go out and do them. But then I realised it was the anniversary of Gladiator, so I was like, well, I'll get in there first. Uh, screw you. <laughs> but yeah, so the the original coming together of Gladiator, uh, as I say, I mean, it's clearly based on Fall of the Roman Empire. It's really weird because actually if you watch the Gladiator... Uh, the documentary about Gladiator, or any of the documentaries about Gladiator that came on the come on the Blu-ray or the DVD, they don't really actually mention Fall of the Roman Empire, the film. They completely glaze over that, which I found slightly odd. But then maybe I don't know, maybe there's like a rights thing or something where they don't want to mention it because it's maybe owned by a different distributor or or something. But um, David Frazzoni, who's the who's the person who wrote the first draft of the script. He recounts how he was going around Europe and uh, visiting India as well on a kind of a gap year. And while he was doing it, he says that he saw a lot of coliseums, which I found weird because there's only one coliseum. Um, yeah, it's like calling every stadium an Anfield or something, you know, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's, 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 <laughs> but he says he saw lots of coliseums going around, uh, going around Europe. Uh, and then he started reading For Those About to Die by Daniel Maddox. Uh, and what he was fascinated with about this concept of the book being about uh, the games in the ancient world was this concept of how political sphere uh, distract the people from what's going on through games, through public events. And he he saw obviously a lot of parallels with today's world, people going to sporting events. Russell Crowe at one point in an interview compares it as well to things like uh, WWF, it was WWF at the time, and now WWE, uh, which I just, to me, in my mind, I was like, that's a, that's a heck of an image. Because uh, this this film, if it was being made now, this would be such a rock film. I could, I think if Rock did it, it would be much cheesier, but I could definitely see him... I mean, he did Hercules, but you could see, you could see Rock doing a Gladiator film. That would be right up his alley. Although, yeah, it would sort of somehow... The problem that Rock's got is that he's just too big that it, it makes everything sort of exaggerated and comic booky, doesn't it? So, you know, you, you'd have him in the arena. He's just like, he's almost like the he's the new Schwarzenegger, isn't he? I mean, I think he's a bit, he's got a sort of better acting sort of ability. But, um, but yeah, he's still got that sort of cartoonish almost uh, appearance because he's just such a massive bloke. But, yeah, I don't know if it would work. You can have those sort of dramatic moments because <laughs> it just, like, tower above everyone. Yeah. But um, to to go back to what I was saying before, <clears throat> for Rizzoni, that's where he gets the original idea from. Reading about the games, looking at the amphitheatres around the Roman world, and thinking in his mind, oh, there's a lot of parallels with today. And then yeah, the, skip, the script, he writes up the script, it goes through a few different versions. Um, it's quite interesting hearing him and some of the other script writers talk about the process, because clearly as the project evolved, people had very different ideas about what direction it should go in and should Maximus, how Maximus's story should be resolved at the end. And apparently him dying was actually quite a late addition to the story. Um, but there was a lot of tension and a lot of frustration on various parts of people involved in writing the script about what direction it should go, which um, I think is somewhat telling though, that sometimes you need that tension in a, in a creative atmosphere to actually produce the best thing you can rather than just simply this is how we should do it but they bring it to Ridley Scott and pitch the story to him and apparently they go in with a copy of the script 
but they also go in with a copy of a painting uh, called Thumbs Down from the 19th century. Uh, Jean-Léon Jerome paints it, but it's got the the gladiator who's looking up at the box. He's in the Colosseum, he's looking up at the box, and then you've got the emperor who's deciding whether or not the man will die. And apparently, as Ridley Scott sat there, they're discussing the picture of him, they could see him just constantly glazing over and just like his head just turning towards the picture and then suddenly like snapping back again and then leaning towards the picture and then snapping back again. So in the end, they were saying that really actually the whole picture of the script wasn't really the thing that sold it, but it was actually that image of the gladiator and him sort of seeing it in a very in a very vivid depiction like that. And I, I thought it was quite interesting because like that probably has some kind of impact on the way the film's actually presented as well. Like when you see some of those images particularly in the Colosseum, like with the rays of light coming down at some points as well. And you can see it's done in a very stylized way. And I, I, you sort of can see maybe that in his mind, he's kind of thinking of these kind of big canvas paintings showing, showing gladiators. But um, yeah, I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, talking about the reconstruction of, of ancient Rome and the, the ancient world more generally, it won an award for its visual effects. I mean, what, did you, what do you think of CGI Rome in Gladiator? I mean, this is a point of contention uh when i've asked other people about it because some people are not really overly keen on the way rome appears in in the film like the actual visual representation of it and there's obviously reasons for that but looking back on it now what do you think of the way rome appears it's quite i suppose you don't see a lot of it do you um but you see yeah distant things and then obviously procession and stuff it seems a bit sanitized i would say um uh, you know when you see those sort of processions and stuff it seems a little bit a bit too ordered, I suppose, from what I would think. But, I mean, when you look at the Colosseum, I think, and, and that presentation of that, I, I think that it's really held up. I mean, that's a surprising thing, I suppose, because it has been a long time since this movie was out, but if you watch it, um, you're not going to... I suppose it's the nature of the film. There wasn't like, some ridiculous amount of CGI in it or anything. It was, the, it was really the arena and stuff, but it just does work because it's used sparingly. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think... And I, Along with the visual effects, there's also the sound effects, which I think, well, I don't know if you're probably talking about that as well, but that, that is something that makes a big impact still, I think, when you're in the arena, that sort of echo of the sounds around and, and the the audience as well. That's something really different. And not many not many films have really done that well in, in that sort of historic setting, have they? Because obviously you've got the original sort of um, sword and sandal era, but you know the technology to record sound and stuff is very different. Um, but then, even with the sort of films that came off the back of Gladiator, they didn't really explore that element very much. You know, you've got Troy and and uh, you know three hundred or something and stuff like this. Very different. Obviously, visually they change things. But yeah, that there's something about the sound in Gladiator that's really good. Although I must say that. There's some weird slow motion things that happen in Gladiator that don't hold up very well. Like, I know we're used to sort of like the 300 slow-mo now, but it's sort of like a stuttery slow-mo. Like the first battle scene, you get a lot of it. And it's like that effect now you see in documentaries and stuff when they sort of want to just cover up the fact that it's just a bunch of guys dressed up, uh, you know, in the <laughs> field in, in, in the southwest or something. You know? So that, 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 that is a bit jarring watching it today. But, but aside from that, I think it's, it's pretty good. But I mean, what are your opinions on like, Rome? Is it, you know, you, do you think it still holds up? I, you know, I think it's, it's a very striking image of Rome. I think it captures an essence. It obviously, ca- well, 
as I was saying earlier, and, and kind of something you touch upon throughout really here, because you can't really escape it, but obviously the way that Roman's presented, it's got certain ideals in mind, which aren't necessarily about entirely the Roman world, but there's clearly other influences there. I mean, one of the things that struck me about it now, like thinking about it particularly um, in context of, of, you know, influences and what, what the filmmakers are trying to say, is the fact that, one, it's very, very white, like in terms of like all the buildings are white, all the sculptures that you see throughout the whole film are white. And I mean, again, this is something that I was saying earlier, like I hate those things where people talk about films and they're, they're inaccurate because of this and they got this wrong. Although it's still quite interesting that when you see like a bus, like Marcus Aurelius's tent, or he's got like various busts of like famous Roman emperors and generals, that they're all plain white and it's kind of reinforcing the idea i suppose to the public about everything was pristine white in the roman world which obviously it wasn't everything was you know multicolored and usually quite bright and obviously that's kind of a reflection of the roman world being i suppose quite multicultural but also as well like the buildings are just completely plain and i kind of feel i i, I th- i'm pretty sure this is what they were getting at obviously where you've got the procession of Commodus into Rome and he comes to the forum I mean that is like so like Nazi Germany slash Mussolini like yeah. there's like so much of that going on like the eagle as well where you get the shot coming down over the eagle like that's really inferred in it and you were talking about um sound effects watching an interview with Hans Zimmer talking about the score of the film and how he came up with certain elements of it uh, he was saying that the bits when he was looking at the images of Rome, like straight away, he was like, Wagner, straight to Wagner. I mean, the Hans Zimmer stuff, actually, the interviews with him about the, the film were really, really interesting. I Actually, yeah, just go on to a side note about that. One of the things that actually is fascinating about it, and you touched upon this actually with sound effects as well, was the way that he approaches the music, particularly during battles. And he was saying in an interview how the music, provides articulation to the battles and to the conflict in the arena because there's not really anything in the way of dialogue i mean there's the guy doing the voiceover like the announcer during the the coliseum who kind of introduces you know mighty carthage etc etc but um he was saying that and apparently this was the thing where they had the original like test viewings for it people liked the film but it didn't have any of the music at the time. And the battle scenes for people, and particularly the scenes in the Colosseum, were actually quite confusing. And mm-hmm. that he was able to provide uh, a soundtrack, which actually, in a way, actually kind of guides people as to what's going on, the ebb and flow of, of the conflict by what's going on in the music, which I thought was a really interesting mm-hmm. point to make about how chaotic scenes with battles, like music actually provides a way of getting the audience to understand what's going on. Because otherwise, if you think there's no music, like at times you'd be like, oh, who's winning? And he was saying as well how the battle scenes are also the music for them. Oh, the kind of basis for that score is a waltz. So a very slow, organised dance. And he was saying the point of that was that Rome is this seen as this great civilization, but it's also a world that is built on conquest, on slavery. And he was saying that by using a waltz as the basis for the battle scenes, he was trying to combine those two elements together. And it's, it's just fascinating when you actually listen to him break down those points. It's it's a fascinating insight out to, as to how 
I suppose more broadly as well, the role that music actually plays in a film and, and what it does. Yeah, it's so it's so vital. And, and you notice different eras of cinema deal with sound in different ways that is really jarring. So when you go back and you, you watch a movie maybe from the 60s or before, like some of these older sword and sandals epics, then sometimes if there is music, it's just it's far too in your face. It's not sort of, it's not staying in the background and highlighting points or something in the narrative it's it's really just there as some sort of you know blaring thing that that, that becomes a bit too much and actually it's it sort of it it heightens or cartoonizes or something the action a little bit i think you know it takes it takes you away but even even saying that of course yeah i mean by by the, the nature of it all of this music is sort of taking you out of reality because it's heightening different points isn't it the thing that uh, the I thought about the score that I hadn't really clocked beforehand. But when there's those battles, like that battle in Carthage, the score sounds so much like Pirates of the Caribbean. Oh, yeah, so, no, he, he kind of reuses yeah. it, clearly, like, because he does the score for Pirates of the Caribbean. It's like, I'm onto you, Hans Zimmer. You just plagiarise your own work. <laughs> exactly. But people do that, don't they? Because I think, um, was it the, rap, the guy that did the Wrath of Khan soundtrack? I think he also did one of the Aliens, I think Aliens or something. And you notice that the the... This is a really nerdy reference, isn't it? <laughs> that sort of reliant theme, uh, if you've seen Wrath of the Khan theme, I suppose, it crops up into um, into aliens and stuff at different points. So it's weird how composers do that, but it sort of still works because they're obviously they're good bits of of, uh, of code, I suppose, like to slot in or something, and they can highlight different emotions or whatever, or different bits of action. Yeah, I suppose it is. It's just uh, there's probably you could probably there probably are studies on the way music affects the brain and how certain types of music done in a certain way hit off certain points in your brain. And so there probably is that thing where the, the Pirates of the Caribbean theme, the bits where it sounds similar to the Gladiator battle theme are the points where it's the real action scene. So there's, there is that element to it where it's your brain is taking the cue of like, oh, this is the crescendo of everything that's going on. And it's, again, it's it's interesting because as you say, or as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's a language unto itself. So it's simply just taking a language and repeating the same words, maybe moving them around and adding slightly different words alongside them. But there is an undercurrent there of a particular language. And it's interesting just because the way Zimmer uh, talks about it is is that's, that's how he sees things as well. He was like, music to me is like a language and that's how I... I apply it. Also, apparently, as well, um, Gladiator allowed him to work with an Armenian flute player uh, that he'd spent most of his life wanting to work with. But the guy very rarely left Armenia and was like in his 70s. And Hans Zimmer had spent a number of years writing music for him that this guy was not going to use because he wasn't getting to meet him. But he was like, I ever get to work with him? Oh, this would be great. And then apparently he ended up, the guy ended up coming to like LA when they were doing the score for Gladiator. So he was like, well, oh, right, this is the moment. So some of the music that you hear in it, I think particularly when they're in North Africa before it sort of, uh, moves across to Rome, some of the music there um, and throughout the film, in other points when you hear a flute is, is this Armenian uh, flute player. Apparently he was a legend in his own country so when uh, Hans Zimmer actually met him as well, to get to n- to know him they shared a bottle of vodka with the guy's face on it. He had his own brand of vodka back home so uh, that, that, was an, that was an interesting uh, little nugget of information there. <laughs> that's, how you, uh, that's how you persuade a reclusive Armenian flute player to uh, uh, be involved in the score for your film. What do you think about the recreation of Oliver Reed 
uh, using CGI towards the end. I think it stands up pretty well. We probably should mention, I don't think I said this earlier, but this was uh, Oliver Reed's last film. He died during the making of it. And what's crazy, actually, is I realised that I think him and Ridley Scott are basically the same age. Because Oliver Reed was only about, I think he's early 60s when he died. He wasn't actually that old. Relatively speaking, he probably, obviously, like, hard living and uh, hell-raising activities. Which was interesting as well, because in an interview with him about the film, he talks about his past and he talks about his reputation. And he talks about how he was second generation kind of hellraiser and that there are people that have come before him like richard burton but also richard harris as well who's in the film as marcus aurelius and then obviously outlived oliver reed as well so it was it's interesting that he he was making reference to that while being interviewed for gladiator because apparently oliver reed it's a heart attack that's brought on at least from my understanding he went out for had loads of drinks and and that was it so um but yeah no i mean still i still think they're one of the probably one of the best british actors ever i mean I yeah, it... I mean, he, he um, I think he might have died on my birthday, actually. It was the year before Gladiator got released, because he, yeah, he died during during the filming or whatever, because of those things. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I can remember at the time being a bit confused by that sort of, like, editing of Proximo into that, you know, that final scene that he has, and thinking, oh, this is strange, because he's such a sort of articulate and, well, slightly verbose character, isn't he, throughout the whole film? And he really owns scenes when he's in them. Um, and I could just remember thinking, oh, what, what's happening here? Why is he saying the same thing and just sort of like seeing him just sort of a shadow of him walking across? But yeah, I mean, what could they do? They couldn't really do much. Um, uh, they had to sort of uh, patch it together, I suppose. Um, but overall, I, I think Oliver Reed's performance is so good. Um, they're, yeah, um, they're saying in it how it, it felt like... Um it was quite bitter in, in, in the sense of losing him, not just because of the natural effect it has when somebody passes away, but also the fact that a number of people felt that his performance in the film was probably going to rejuvenate his career. He was yeah. kind of in a bit of, in some respects, like an actor midlife slump, really. Like, he kind of had his heyday, and Ridley Scott, apparently, when he brought him in, he actually asked him to read for the part initially. <laughs> it's a great interview with Oliver Reed, but they asked they were asking him about that and he was like, Yeah, so I got the script and it, it came over and I looked at it and uh yeah, and then it said on the note that he wanted me to come to read for him and I thought to myself, Fuck off like and he's just basically like i'm oliver reed like what but um in the end he decided he was like okay i'll go and do it so he read for the part and then um ridley scott was uh obviously straight away was like no it's it's fine um but um yeah no they were saying that in, in some respects they feel feel like he probably would have had like a renaissance in his career afterwards if he'd lived and yeah it's crazy as well when you think that i think most people um grow up when they're growing up, at some point, watch Oliver and see him as Bill yeah, Sykes. I, and... I was literally going to say this, but when I was, I haven't seen a lot. I've got to say that I sort of knew Oliver Reed through Oliver when I was a kid, because yeah, I, I, I like used to watch it when I went to my nan's like all the time. So all of those things just kept putting on, and he's like amazing in that because he basically is Bill Sykes. He's just ideal for that character. But um, but yeah, it, it, I haven't watched a lot of his other films, but. Then he, you sort of strongly associate with that. I suppose people our age, and then we saw him in, in, in Gladiator. You instantly recognise those sort of features that, uh, and maybe like link that sort of thing of being an intimidating character as well. So it was connected in the mind and stuff. Um, and yeah, who knows? He could have gone on to do lots of other things because that sort of age group of actors, you know, we've seen with other sort of 
and theatrical actors and um, and the like. They could go on to get lots of different roles. I mean, who knows? It might have been in all of those sword and sandals epics throughout the 2000s for all we know. To be honest, I wouldn't have, coming off the back of that, I wouldn't have been surprised if, if he'd lived, if he'd shown up somewhere in like Lord of the Rings and things like that. They, that, that sort of seems like it would have been ready-made. And uh, to the same, because if um, Ridley Scott is still going now making films and him and Oliver Reed would have been, they are roughly about the same age. So it's quite possible that... Uh, if he lived a longer life he'd still be going now so as well you know almost certainly you can imagine him turning up maybe in Harry Potter or something I don't know maybe that would be a bit too uh, not quite the Oliver Reed spectrum but uh, yeah but in any case even still yeah it's a shame but um, I think it's quite fascinating just looking back on that now because obviously we're now in this stage of film where you have the Marvel films where they've de-aged Samuel Jackson for pretty much a whole film. You've had Star Wars Rogue One where they brought back Peter Cushing and uh, the kind of younger version of Carrie Fisher in it. And, you know, this whole thing now where increasingly we seem to be moving towards resurrecting deceased actors and or we're able to de-age older actors. And it almost feels like the seeds of that were planted in Gladiator. I don't know. I actually don't know if anything prior to Gladiator had really done anything like that. I mean, obviously they were forced into it, but I don't know if that had actually really been done before in film. Funnily enough, actually, in a weird sort of, not quite a parallel, but a weird relationship with that. I don't know if you ever saw Oliver Reed in the Musketeer films he did. Yeah, Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the last Musketeer film they did, the guy who played D'Artagnan's kind of like manservant, or he was like, I can't remember his exact role. Um... But he died during the making of it. I think he fell off a horse and like broke his neck or something, or fell off a horse and had a heart attack or whatever. But um, they finished the film, and the scenes that he was still to do, they shot him from the back. Basically, they had like a standing double and shot him from the back. And you know, he's riding a horse, so you only see him from behind, etc. So they had to do it in a way that put him into the film. But even though the actor had died during the making of the film, which is kind of weird, actually, because Oliver Reed being in that film and then how what would happen to Gladiator. Um, but I don't know, if, obviously, prior to Gladiator, there had been any attempts to, like, CGI recreate an actor and actually put their face onto a different actor or put them into a scene where they weren't actually there. So it's quite interesting, like, Gladiator, in terms of its impact with that sort of thing as well. That And obviously it's something that's forced upon them, but what it actually has meant for cinema, because I think it probably was the first time it's happened and whether or not that's a good thing moving forward or not I, I don't know but uh, apparently also as well one scene that they or at least Ridley Scott really wanted to do for the film uh, which had to be discarded because it wasn't going to happen was uh, he wanted to have Maximus fight a rhino in the Colosseum and they were saying that it was just too expensive to, to have a CGI rhino it cost about a million dollars to make at the time and let's face it we still can't do CGI rhinos because you only have to look for Black Panther don't you I mean the, the... <laughs> awful bit of cgi and that was happening what a couple of years ago so god knows what monstrosity they'd have put together for gladiator (laughs) well yeah i was going to say i think that was one of those things where quite grateful that it just didn't come to pass i don't i don't think the rhino would have worked in gladiator i don't quite know how that would have played out but the idea of maximus possibly single-handedly defeating a rhino in the Colosseum maybe would have taken the film to kind of levels of absurd that it didn't need to go to but maybe he meant rhino the wrestler yeah, maybe that was. <laughs> God, that is a really niche reference getting getting in there. The interesting thing, actually, as well, though, is that they. I mean, we talk about you know how you recreate in Rome and how accurate you are, accurate you are about it, but one of the the benefits they have, I suppose, is that 
the the games themselves are never really and gladiator uh, fights are never really discussed that much in ancient texts mentioned in passing in relation to other things and we obviously have visual images of them on things like um, gravestones and, and other iconography of gladiators graffiti but you kind of do have quite an open sphere to to play around with really in terms of the, the, the world of ancient rome because yeah there's not a lot to actually be entirely right or wrong about i mean obviously they say like you know some of the way the gladiators are dressed and stuff like particularly the arena in north africa is like a bit ott and some of the weapons they have but by and large that's quite a handy thing to have for a filmmaker where you're like well it doesn't actually matter what we do because yeah. it's not really actually, gonna be time. Mean, to be honest the reality might be too bizarre to try and do for an audience because like there isn't there there's documentation that they filled up one of those amphitheaters at some point didn't they uh with water and did some sort of naval battles yeah that's what the uh coliseum was used for um yeah. so i mean but but i think trying to do that if you put that into a movie i think a lot of the general public will go wait a minute how did they do that so that, that, that it just would be jarring i think i mean uh for for people to try and see so i suppose in some respects you've got you know you, you're beyond beyond the stuff that you can do in the movies anyway so you've got such a blank canvas mm. um, yeah sometimes uh, truth is stranger than fiction <laughs> well uh, true yeah. as I found though during the course of my research um, the uh, I say my research watching documentaries on it um, <laughs> uh, but uh, they used uh, Trajan's column as one source to, to get an idea of particularly the army of what they'd wear and the the weapons they would have uh, also as well though I thought quite interesting when they would trying to create chain mail for the opening battle and they found it was unrealistic to try and actually get somebody to manufacture real chain mail because obviously how heavy it is but then trying to mass produce a substitute was also very difficult and in the end they had to find somebody in the UK who who who, who made S&M gear and they had to be the one, they were the ones that made the uh, the chain mail that you see in the film because they were the only person that could do it with uh, make what they needed within the budget, which I thought was uh, quite interesting. Sometimes you, you know, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. So uh, yeah, yeah. The, the kinky undercurrent of Gladiator that people don't realise is there. Talking about sources as well, when we see Commodus fighting in the arena, that's something he actually did. The the real Commodus. I've gone back over having a look at the, the major sources for his life. Uh, Historia Augusta, it's uh, always a good read. Um, Cassius Dio and Herodian. And he's, he's an interesting character to go back to, Commodus. He, he really is. Um, talking earlier about um, his reputation as a bad emperor and you know, the sources are not particularly positive on him. They kind of vary somewhat. Particularly the sources that are perhaps closer to his time, the likes of Cassius Dio, don't really represent him as being, though, necessarily a bad person entirely. But as is often the case with some of these bad emperors, he's somebody that's easily led and somebody that's very impressionable. And I mean, obviously in Gladiator, the, the thing with him killing Marcus Aurelius didn't, didn't really happen. In actual real life, um, Marcus Aurelius makes Commodus his co-emperor, I think, for the last few years of his reign. So it was a very legitimate transfer of power when Marcus Aurelius dies. And um, Commodus as well, actually, has come from good stock. His grandfather was Antoninus Pius through his mother as well. So um, he's got a fair bit of imperial blood uh, running through him as well. Didn't realise this actually till I went back and looked at the sources. Uh, he had a twin brother as well, um, who died when they were four years old. Um, so you know, there's a, there's an alternate history out there for somebody to write if they if they like. Yeah, so uh, famous for fighting in the arena. He's kind of a populist emperor, I would say. Clearly wants the acclaim of the crowd. 
uh, it's, it's interesting where you see some of the critiques that are leveled at him. Obviously, there's the kind of you know, having people executed, which is bad. Um, but again, when they talk about him being impressionable, when he's younger, I think his history Augusta talks about um, talks about his vices such as singing, dancing, whistling. He does all these terrible things when he's younger, like that. Um, but it's it's interesting how again that's kind of got like echoes of Nero to him, like the whole idea of just simply being an emperor who is perhaps quite creative, that's quite interested in the arts, to, well, with a particularly great interest in those kind of elements of society, automatically kind of makes you a bad emperor. And I think it's quite interesting as well that a lot of his bad reputation seems to at least originate in part from his desire to, when his father dies, let's just stop having these battles on the Germanic frontier. Like, let's just make a deal with them and stop. And... So again, like talk about echoes of previous emperors. It's a bit like Domitian stopping the expansion in Britain and just being like, look, this is getting a bit silly now. What we're just wasting forces doing this. But then back in Rome, it seems to have this impact on their public image or not. Well, their public image, maybe not so much, but certainly amongst the senatorial elite and their subsequent um, reception, the, they're somehow bad emperors because they don't want to continue imperial expansion, even though it seems quite logical. Yeah, you've got to be sort of a certain type of character to come out well, haven't you, as an emperor being judged by those Roman sources. And generally, the best emperors are these expansionist-type figures that don't try and mess around with the system too much and have successful sort of you know campaigns. I suppose Claudius is the, the one that doesn't get enough credit for his uh, conquering Britain and then is still much blind. But that's because he's sort of tinkering with the system in Rome and getting in, I guess, in, in other influential people's way and stuff. So a lot of these emperors, like you say, like, like Nero and Commodus, there are aspects of their character that also just rub people the wrong way that, oh, maybe they like things that are coming from the Greek world or maybe, you know, other things that just don't sort of jive well with maybe some of that senatorial class. And perhaps people just don't give enough credit as well, especially, I think, general public or whatever, for the, the sort of influence of those people that, that, that are the aristocrats in Rome at the time. You know, there's a sort of sense that, oh, well, you know, the, the emperor is all powerful, but there's still people sort of working against those those uh, rulers and stuff and trying to put their own power to the forefront and so if you if you're going against tradition or something or there's some angle to attack you they're going to find it aren't they so mm. yeah see the thing as well is is that very early on in his reign his sister much like in gladiator does cons- seemingly at least anyway conspire against him and it's a thwarted assassination attempt it doesn't go very well because apparently the guy that tries to assassinate him kind of makes a big thing out of coming before Commodus and then it's, I don't know the exact words he used, and it's like, now you shall die! But him drawing his sword and saying that gives them the split second for like his guard to be like, no, you don't. Um, so he, he gets stopped before he does it. But then again, he comes to power, I think, when he's only in his late teens to early 20s. So he's a very young man still as well. And obviously, as we say, the, the way he's presented in the sources is, quite impressionable that he's not necessarily a very strong character as well like he's quite easily ruled but then if you combine that with your sister tries to have you assassinated seemingly at least anyway um or at least somebody tries to have him assassinated you know those kind of things are going to have a tremendous impact on you you can see it where they are going to become more perhaps tyrannical because straight off the bat before you've had a chance to even do much as an emperor you're already under threat from the people in your kind of immediate circle and yeah again it's one of those things where you you sort of 
you know, obviously it doesn't necessarily always vindicate their later actions, but to some extent you can kind of understand what's going on. And obviously Commodus is in a bit of a difficult position anyway, because he's coming after a number of emperors who have been basically chosen to be emperor, and then he's born into it. And it's almost like, well, there's no, there's no, none of this kind of like choosing somebody that perhaps is suited to the role, or kind of grown into the role. He's kind of almost thrust into it. And then, like, the impression I get is that he just wants to go back to Rome and kind of hang out with his friends and just have a good time and wants people to like him, but it doesn't go very well. I mean, I think as time progresses, he'll becomes more tyrannical and all these suggestions that he wants to rename Rome and rename the months of the year but you know how many of those are just kind of literary tropes in my mind when I'm reading over that stuff and I think of people like him it's weird how you think those kind of people would play out in say the 20th century British monarchy I mean I'm thinking of somebody like Edward VII, who comes after his mother, Queen Victoria. So in the same way that Commodus comes after his father, who's like this very well-established emperor who's had a decent innings, Edward VII comes after his mother, Victoria, and he comes in and his kind of role is not to govern, but it's to kind of be this maternal figure that the the, the population kind of look to for as a kind of figurehead, but not a figurehead that's got, you know, he's got some degree of power, but he's not got an overly direct influence on events. You know, that's been more left to politicians and to some extent, I suppose you might say generals as well. And, you know, his kind of image is this masculine, goes out hunting, does these kind of, you know, he, as I say, he's kind of got this very much turn of the century father figure-esque image to him. And you think somebody like Commodus and like clearly the interests that he has, if you took him and transposed him into early 20th century Britain into that kind of royal family then, he probably would have fitted in quite well, actually. Like, he would kind of tick the boxes, really, wouldn't he? Because, um, obviously, from a Roman perspective, these ideas of being uh, overly concerned with the games and wanting to actively take part in them and maybe being an actor and being interested in poetry and, as you're saying, like, Greek culture, much in the case of Nero, it seems to it rubs up at least the the aristocracy the wrong way, if not the people. And then that obviously then gets transmitted down because the aristocracy are the ones that are feeding this information to later generations. And yeah, it's interesting just how those kind of social norms have changed, though, what's expected of somebody who's supposed to be the head of a state. I guess he had to follow the double whammy of having someone that was an emperor in Marcus Aurelius that was successful in fighting and and sort of defending and expanded the empire and then also being a massive stoic so you know he's got like the roman virtues sort of uh, sewn up as well and then where, where are you going to go with that as commodus is, is going to be difficult isn't it to try and get better in in any you can't be a thinker you're not going to be better than him and you know you're probably not going to have successes on the frontier or whatever so a bit difficult mm. well i mean you say that about like where do you go this is one of the really interesting things i think about commodus is that there's a chapter by Eleonora Cavallini, which is in a book which is mainly looking at, it's like a multi-authored volume, which is focused on the fall of the Roman Empire, the Christopher Plummer film, but obviously because of Gladiator potentially being a remake, it talks about that as well. And she wrote a chapter in that, which was how bad was Commodus really? And one of the things that she points out that's very interesting is that in Vandal, North Africa... Oh, it's Roman domination has ended in North Africa. The Vandals are coming in, come in, taken over. One of the Vandal kings has a poem that's written in his honour, which 
talks about him being similar in certain ways to some of the great Roman leaders. And the great Roman leaders that are listed in the poem are Julius Caesar, Augustus, Titus and Commodus. And for quite a while, people thought that's got to be wrong. Like that must be that the the author of that poem must have mixed up Commodus with his father. Uh, it, it, people were quite baffled as to how Commodus, who doesn't seem to have a very good reputation, ended up being listed as a good emperor. And the argument she makes is that actually one area that Commodus would have been perhaps quite popular would have been amongst Christian circles, because Marcus Aurelius persecuted the Christians, and it seems that Commodus actually stopped the persecution. And there are rumours that one of his, or we're told, that one of his mistresses was a Christian herself and had a certain degree of influence over him. And that actually, to some degree, he rolled back the persecution of the Christians, and this had a an impact on Christian impressions of him. So once you get into the later Roman Empire, and once you start getting more more of a Christian influence on on writings, and then once you move into the kind of successor states where you know you know you're living in a largely um, uh, increasingly Christian world, and actually for a kind of period in this kind of late to post Roman era, the Commodus's reputation was actually probably quite high because of the fact that he wasn't an active persecutor of the Christians. Which again is is really interesting in the way that history is now played out because you think, oh, Marcus Aurelius, really good emperor, really nice guy. Commodus, oh, he's he's awful, he's terrible. But then, then it's like Marcus Aurelius of persecuting Christians. Commodus, like, oh, we'll stop that, we'll bring it to an end, let's have some religious toleration. And everyone like, and now his memory, everyone's like, oh god, he was so god awful. And it's it, again, it's it's interesting though how those those kind of elements of the personality almost because obviously they. That's not something that the Roman aristocracy would initially care about, or it's not something that's that important to them, and or maybe something they actively would have been against, are not really brought to the fore. And I suppose, really, I guess one of the big influences on Commodus having this bad reputation is Edward Gibbon with Decline and Fall, because I think he pretty much looks at Commodus's reign as being the tipping point where it slides away into obviously the, the anarchy of the third century and sowing the seeds of what will happen later. But actually, the so it seems like there was a period where he uh, actually had a pretty, pretty decent, pretty decent <laughs> reputation amongst people. But uh, alas, uh, down, down to history. But um, this is—I mean, this is where we get into the point about how it, it draws on the zeitgeist, or, or draws on what's going on at the times that the film is actually made. I, I read another interesting chapter, which was looking at Gladiator in, in the context of the times of which it's made by um, Emily Albu. And she talks about, when you first say it, it sounds kind of crazy, but maybe it has a point to it, that the characters of Maximus and Commodus actually kind of reflect the American election of 2000, in that Bill Clinton was seen as being a good leader in a sense of the economy was doing well. America was very much, you know, it still is a world power, but obviously it's kind of standing in the world at the moment, maybe somewhat questionable. But, you know, under Clinton, they were kind of at the forefront of world events, etc., or as a kind of world leader. But the thing was, is that while many Americans who were asked, do you think America is essentially doing well at the time, would vote in favour of yes, if you were asked, do you think that it's in a good place morally, they would say no. And a lot of people looked at Clinton because of his affairs and his indiscretions as being this face of the immoral decline of the United States. And then on the flip side of that, you've got Bush, who go on to succeed him 
Democratic president to a Republican president, uh, Bush would kind of sell himself as being this kind of more traditional American, you know, the kind of Republican Party values to some extent, like reasserting moral uh, integrity. And apparently Al Gore really distanced himself from much of his campaign from Clinton because of this public perception of him. And then it was actually towards the end that Clinton was brought in and that actually started to even out the playing field but the republicans at the time jumped onto the themes that were being presented in gladiator much much more swiftly than the the democrats because they saw in what was going on there of this immoral leader and i suppose you might say consumerism and the games and the public displays distracting people while a moral collapse is happening behind the scenes and it's going to drag the empire down and they're reasserting that maybe not directly but that you could almost see george bush at the time as being a maximus oh god (laughs) (laughs) oh god (laughs) well yeah i mean i sort of see what you mean i think all of um every imperial power has has a sort of moment where it looks back and it's like golden age thinking, isn't it? And, and starts judging itself and saying, we were better at this time period, that this is our golden age. And the British Empire obviously did it. And looking back at the Romans, there were obviously a lot of writers at the beginning of the 20th century were sort of doing that same thing, weren't they? And sort of saying, this is where Rome went wrong. It went downhill morally. Um, but we don't need to, you know, we don't need to follow it. But then I suppose a lot of people look back at, British Empire and say the same thing. I mean, even if you say the sort of callous disregard for life in World War One or something, um, you know, this idea of a sort of the uh, top of society losing losing focus and stuff. So I guess that there is that parallel with America, and they they still they've still got a. I mean, not that I know loads about American politics, but it it always seems to me there's a strange sense for a a country that doesn't have a monarchy uh, of of getting on board with dynasties and sort of supporting those things. Obviously, you've got the Clintons and Hillary went on to run, um, the Kennedys, the Bushes, these sorts of families that established themselves as being at the top of this this power structure there. And it's still sort of acceptable and it's seen as quite comforting maybe to an extent to carrying on these things because you've even got with Trump now that who knows if this will come to pass, but the idea that he could hand down power to some of his children as well, or that they would run for the Republicans at some point. And that's that's quite revealing, isn't it? So I suppose it does connect to some of those ideas you were saying, that even though it seems a bit bizarre for us, it's picking up on the same idea of handing over power um, to dynasties, you know, and, and continuing power in some ways, um, which you're getting with Commodus, Marcus Aurelius, and, and any challenger at that time, after Commodus as well. Yeah, with the later releases of Gladiator on DVD and Blu-ray, they reinserted certain scenes as well that were cut from the original theatrical release, uh, including one where I think Lucilla talks to the various senators about Commodus and how Rome is falling apart and some of the bad points. And that was actually seen with the reinsertion of that to actually be possibly as being a critique of the Bush administration, uh, later on, because it attacks things like the, well, they talk in this conversation, this conversation, this cut scene, they talk about you know the attacks on education and on uh, the, kind of the intelligentsia, etc. And it's just notable that the reinsertion of one scene in the in a later edition of the film 
at least what I mean, I was saying this is this is based on the chapter I was reading, but it was arguing that that kind of flipped the interpretation around. And whereas the Republicans are kind of latched on some of the things in Gladiator when it was released, when it was they were going to the election, that a few years later the reinsertion of certain scenes in Gladiator, you could read the film as being a critique of of the Bush administration, which perhaps possibly also infers that maybe we take these things a little bit too far. Um, there's probably there is probably like a subconscious element to it, but at the same time, you know, sometimes you just think, well. There's obviously, you know, they made it very clear that the film is based around this idea of people watching these big public spectacles, that there's a degree of public enjoyment of watching displays of violence, um, and that that can be a distraction, but, you know, where it falls on the kind of political spectrum at times, I think it's difficult to to assess. It's like Maximus's character is basically um, Cincinnatus. He is the general that goes to war for the good of the state, but really all he wants to do is go home and tend his crops. And, you know, he's forced into this almost against his will and has to save the state from a threat, whereas, you know, in this case, it's it's an internal threat. Also as well, though, because the, the, the big parallel, I suppose, in American history for Cincinnatus is Washington, the guy that leads the forces of the revolution... He becomes the first president, but you know, I mean, realistically, Washington probably did have the scope to make himself a monarch. Maybe not overtly, but he had the scope to become like an Oliver Cromwell Lord Protector figure, which basically is a quasi-monarch, and then in the end decided not to do that and went back to his farm. You could see Maximus, I guess, as being drawing on that kind of idea of, of Cincinnatus, but also very much he's kind of like Washington, really. And he's a general that's actually not really mired in political scandal. He operates outside of the political sphere. He's a guy that he does what he needs to do for the service. He's stay on the battlefield and then he goes home to his wife and his kids as a devout husband to to tend his crops. And that's the the ideal image that particularly in America, I think, of what you want to present of a citizen, or at least you did in, in the past. And again, yeah, it's, 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 it's one of those things that when you actually start to peel back the layers of it, I think you can see the influence of the, the atmosphere in which it's made. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think you tend to sort of just, with something like this, it's always going to be easy because you're sort of, there is sort of so much almost linguistic overlap with American politics and Roman politics because you've got senates, you've got republics, you've got all of these, these offices that are the same and then you've got the presidency as being a supreme leader that's in control of, of all those things, which is different from what we've got here. So you sort of, I think there are always going to be those things. If you make a film about Rome, that people are going to sort of start thinking about um, American politics as a fan. Of course, they're a superpower as well. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I should quickly go back to Commodus just to note before well, we'll move to closing in a second. But um, one of the things I didn't know about Commodus is apparently, um, according to the historian Augusta, he desecrates the rights of Isis, Bellona, and Mithras. Um, so, yeah, my guy, my guy's getting in there somewhere. This this mention of Commodus desecrating the rights of Mithras, apparently what he does is that he does things that they pretend to do, but actually does them. So the with Mithraic initiations, you'd be blindfolded, and then you'd presumably have like a sword or a bow and arrow or a torch waved in your face and you pretend to die i've often thought that because you see some of this stuff in images in mithraea like there's frescoes on the wall i've often thought it's a bit like when you go to i don't know 
a, the science museum or something and you put your hand into the box and they're like oh you're feeling brains and actually it's not it's jelly or something like that yeah. but you know that idea of being told something's going on and then you can't see it so you think it's going on and i think that's probably actually what happened a lot of the time that people thought like a sword was being waved in their face but it's actually not not really what's going on it's just they i mean because there's another image where it looks like a scorpion's being placed on somebody and i think probably somebody just like tickled their hand up and down somebody's back so you know it's 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 getting an emotional response but it's not putting them in physical danger it seems well from the what the historian augustus says which i'm skeptical about but i think the point is making about the because what it's saying is that commodus takes that too far and actually kills people but I think that probably is actually reflective of what goes on. So it's an interesting uh, little tidbit in there. So I've got some Mithras in there somewhere. Um, I mean, really, strictly speaking, when you think about it, it makes sense for uh, Maximus to be a Mithraic adherent, but we don't get that in the film anywhere. I suppose that wouldn't sell for audiences because, uh, you know, I suppose sometimes it's... Uh... Well, he's not... That's the interesting thing about it on a side note because he doesn't really have a religion in it, does he? He has uh, a belief in an afterlife. And he prays to the kind of household gods, which I suppose is more reflective of family devotion than it is outright religious adherence. Maybe there are Christian undertones in there, but really, I suppose it's quite a secular film, I suppose, when you think about it in some ways. It's very broad in the way you can interpret those elements of the film. I was going to say, just I just had a thought, actually, with the old religious thing, because you say it's quite secular. Pretty much all of Roman stuff in cinema seems to be a bit secular though doesn't it it's one of those things that you know in comparison with films where you get like films about the greek world i always find it weird how the roman stuff just never has any myths or you know all of these bizarre sort of traditions and stuff that go with roman religion just doesn't get into the films it's like oh set way if you do a roman film it's got to be army practical stuff like this all, all these things and you just forget about the fact that the, the romans had very similar beliefs to the greeks and about all of these sort of magical things going on and, and strange things like that so it's just weird that i think the public they they see the romans in that way and want them to be presented i suppose in that way in cinema and it's weird because then i get students who um if i'm teaching a general model you know, module about the introduction to the ancient world, nearly always like Egyptians and Greeks more because they're more interesting because <laughs> you get like video games and cinema and stuff that's all sort of like, wow, magical, crazy. Even some like 300, which is a historical event, could be jazzed up and made into this inc- incredible magical spectacle. Whereas the Roman stuff, we've got Gladiator and then very serious um, series like Rome or something, which is very good, but, you know, very sort of realistic and stuff. So it's a, it's a strange thing, a strange theme for Roman stuff. I mean, even the video games, you, you never get like a God of War uh, or something <laughs> in, in the Roman world. You, you get like um, the sort of strategy games like Rome Total War that are all really practical. Strange. Mm. There's probably a lot being said there about reception and how people view Rome and its kind of place and the way that the ancient world is applied to modern situations and how it serves a purpose. It probably says a lot about the role that Rome serves in that regard. Because in my mind, I was thinking about though the you know the original kind of run of sword and sandal epics. Like so much of that was like about the Christians fighting against the evil emperor. Whereas in this example, Maximus is stripped of that. But yeah, as I say, it, it struck me after I watched it because I was like, if he's a soldier up on the northern frontiers, he's, he's probably dabbled in some Mithras. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, what do you think about the prospect of a sequel it's been touted it's been mentioned on a number of occasions it seems to be one of those things that picks up a bit of steam and then 
dissipates. There, there apparently was a rumour where... Was it Nick Cave wrote a script and Maximus was going to go up to the gods and then he was going to be sent back down to Earth and then go through various generations fighting in different wars. I don't know if that's an urban myth or not. That might just be one of those things that was made up. I definitely, I've definitely read that in places, but to me that just sounds so ridiculous. Well, I say that, I mean, maybe Nick Cave did write that script and just nobody was like, this isn't going to get made. But there's been talk about possibly doing a sequel with the boy, uh, Lucius Verus having grown up and, and what's going to happen there. Do you think it's the sort of film that could have a sequel? No, I mean, I, I think it's a sort of self-contained story. And, of course, the problem you've got is that, you know, it, it didn't have a happy ending. If, if you sort of try and slot it into the, to the reality, of course, things, things went pretty, pretty badly. I mean, I would like to see a film about the, the third century or the, the end of the second century because I think it's an area that just has so little coverage in popular culture and actually is really interesting. I mean, even if you go further forward to do... Oh, a, a film on Aurelian or something, the big, big sort of third century emperors, because there just seems like such a area that you've got lots of things that you could do, <laughs> lots of conflict, lots of intrigue and stuff, but just for some reason, it's all about first and second century, isn't it, when you make a, a, a film about Rome? So, uh, yeah, in, in theory, I'd like a film set in that period, but whether it needs to, I mean, what kind of connection could it really have to? to that gladiator situation it's really difficult to see how you could do it um, mm. as i've said on the podcast before I'd, I'd be interested if they decided to draw on the actual historical narrative which i mean it, it, to some degree they have to anyway you can't you can't completely sidestep it and you, i mean if, unless you want to make something that is just purely alternate history yeah, I'd be interested if they actually did go down the route of introducing Septimius Severus and possibly having his sons as well, and how they would deal with that. The idea of having a film, a particularly a, you know a major film at the box office that had essentially an African emperor. I think that would be that would be very interesting as to how that would be presented, how they would go about it, how the kind of reception and how it would the reaction that it would garner. Because um, that obviously, even going back to when Gladiator was made, I don't think realistically you could do that. And if you went back to the the heydays of the sword and sandal epics, and everybody's completely white, at least well, like ninety nine percent of people. So now to actually do a film where, with off the success of things like Black Panther as well, it goes to show that there's obviously elements in Hollywood that previously would have not gone near that idea. It clearly would, I think, sell. I don't. I don't think that's the problem. But actually, it's an interesting question of would somebody willing to go there to break the mold of what people are so used to in the public realm of what ancient Rome looks like. What we're saying about uh, Rome and the way it's presented in Gladiator and the image of it being a very white place in terms of the buildings, but also you know the people as well, and and how that would be received if they decided to actually go down the route and say we're going to do a sequel and we're going to use the historical context. We're going to have a guy from North Africa become the emperor in the end and be the guy that wins. That's, uh, I'd be on board for that, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult to know in Hollywood if people would go down that route or not, at least at the yeah, moment. It's that sort of thing as well. Of, uh, of Also, maybe you could show North Africa in a slightly different light. I mean, in Gladiator, it's a sort of strange snapshot of, of North Africa. 
you know, even what, what people are wearing, the sort of headdresses and all these things. Um, and was North Africa really like that in the Roman period? You know, it's obviously very, well, for want of a better word, Romanized, uh, <laughs> especially during the, 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 the Severan period when you've got huge amounts of investment in places like, you know, Leptis and stuff like that. Um, so it, it's a bit of a weird, you know, it'd be interesting to see Africa in a different light as well, apart from just films about Egypt or something. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a broad scope in the Roman world, and I think, yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about exploring the Roman world on film and looking at regions that go outside of Europe in particular and looking at the Roman world from that perspective. But as I say, it's it's uh, it's a question of whether or not um, people in Hollywood are, are willing to go down that road just yet. But I think at some point in our lifetime we'll probably see it and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it how it plays out. Well, I think that's 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 a good point to uh, round up our conversation about Gladiator. Yeah, I, I'm sure... Um, when I put this episode up online, it will uh, be around for a long time, and what we said will echo in eternity. <laughs> <laughs> Outrageous way to end. <laughs> uh... All right, thank you very much.